Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs. We're on chapter 39, page 148. It's a, this is a, I guess a medium-sized chapter for this book. As a matter of record, Brigham Young once stated that his formal education at schoolhouse had not exceeded a period of 11 days, and that he was the divisor of a system of education by which the children of the Mormon faith could be taught in such a way that they could take full advantage of their native gifts, whatever they were. When he was a little boy, he had been so poor that he had carried his shoes in his hands, wearing them like gloves, until he reached the church door, where he had put his shoes on his feet rather than enter a place of worship with his bare feet exposed before the altar of God. His mother had died of tuberculosis when she, he was still quite young, and he was left to the care of a sister who had carried him on her hip when he was a baby and to whom he had remained very close. Almost as if the two were interpolated as one, he and the sister, who was the repetition of the dead mother's image. Once when the wiry old man had gone away in search of work by which to bring grain for the feeding of these two children, who were the last of the large young flock still living with him, he who had expected to return with the setting sun had been delayed for almost three days, during which the two children would have starved if it had not been for the brave little Brigham Young's taking his father's rifle down from a wall, and going out into the snow where he had spotted a robin redbreast upon whom he had placed his bead, shooting it undoubtedly without knowledge that the breast of this little bird had turned red with grief on the day that Christ was killed. He had brought the slain robin into the cabin and laid it on a table and defeathered it and wrapped it in a little shroud made of old flour leavings and water and put it into a little pan or coffin for baking into a little pie which the children had eaten and no doubt when the old father with his beard frozen onto his face came home at last with grain he had found them both chirping toward his children even before he became mormon of that pluralistic religion in which monogamy was replaced by polygamy polygamy monogamy polygamy uh, polygamy brigham young had shown infinite care for their material and spiritual welfare there was scarcely a town or village in any part of northwestern New York that did not have marks of his craftsmanship. A window glazed by him, or a door carved by him, or a fireplace carved by him, or a stairway, all of most excellent skill. Nothing dishonest in his joining of beams, all as he had promised, no roof falling down before it was pitched up. He had paid Easter eggs to hide in the hay for his little daughters to find, and never did they run around in rags and tatters like the poor little Mormon children hiding themselves away in haystacks when the genteel raiders came to set fire to haystacks, or pitch little Mormon children upon their pitchforks into the fires, which kept on burning like stars in the midst of waters. One of the resolutions that Brigham Young had made after his conversion over to the Mormon flock was that never again would he do any work that would increase the wealth of genteels by even one dollar. All the dollars which he might earn must be for the increase and benefit of the Mormon Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, whose property time and again would be stolen from them. Regarding polygamy, Brigham Young once confessed that when he first heard that it was to replace monogamy, he had been filled with such a dread sense of apprehension that he had felt he would rather be wrapped in his cowl and placed in his coffin and carried on his briar to his grave than have to assume responsibility for the feeding of many wives, many children. Brigham Young's geography was that in which polygamy was the great divide marking the difference between his former life and his life as a believer in a new dispensation. All that Mr. Johnson, Samuel Clemens's alter ego and comic mask, concerning the tragic yeah. 
concealing the tragic mask of the future Mark Twain, for whom all forms of human idealism, whether of institutions or men, all sacred cows were flawed, insubstantial, subjected to shattering, sent to dust and ashes, and they included elemosynary utopias, such as that of the Mormons, had based on his own superficial recollections of what the affable Mr. Young had silently confided to him. The great question seemed to be, was Mr. Young happy among so many wives? <laughs> not if the wives were so happy with him. <laughs> it appeared that he was not, if one may believe what Mr. Johnson said to Samuel Clemens, Ryan's little brother or sister who had heard earlier in the evening from the other Gentiles in their dead of happiness of the Mormon elders who, greedy as big fat toads, could take all the women of all ages from a family, ranging from the old grandmother down to the little granddaughter, and then take all the men because of their belief that the brightest stars in heaven would be theirs, no one knowing in advance of the experience, of course, whether these stars gleaming in the meteor's tail would be extremely cold or extremely hot. Mr. Young had bent Mr. Johnson's ear. Uh, sorry, Mr. Young had bent Mr. Johnson's listening tin ear by pouring into it the confession that life was a sad, sad thing, for the joy of every marriage which he contracted with the new bride was so often blighted by the inopportune funeral of a less recent bride. One of Father Brigham Young's letters to a Mormon farmer who, it would some day be divulged, had written to him of the hard times that were his lot, daily lot, as he was always bent over, digging, 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 so that he had felt as if he were being killed, was that as his two or three wives, who might have good reason for wanting to kill him, had not been able to do so, that nothing could kill him, and he should stop pitying himself and should keep on digging, dropping his turnip seeds for the glory of the Lord, or words to that effect. Father Young also had to keep close track of the tenth of their products that the Mormons brought to the tithing house, without which their names were struck off the rolls of the saved by the recording angels who watched over such contributions and their nature as to whether they were real or false. The depressing situation that Mr. Johnson had seen enacted before his eyes was that in which the ever-hopeful dis and not easily despairing Mr. Young had been set upon by one of the Mrs. Youngs rushing in and demanding a breastpin such as she had just found out he had given to another of his wives. Number six. It evidently had amused Mr. Johnson or Samuel Clemens to label, label Mr. Young's wives as if they were spools of silk or some other merchandise, perhaps piled up in some great shadowy dimly outlined warehouse where would be galaxies of stars brighter than most seen on earth, a crown of stars for the Mormon head as for other elders of the Church of Zion when they passed through the pearly gates. What Mr. Johnson had beheld with his own eyes and not with somebody else's eyes and what he had reported in an irrational language beyond summary in a rational language might well strike man's funny bone as a scene of comic chaos very much like that of a wandering puppet show such as Punch and Judy or Noah's Ark or Jack and Jill. Mr. Young had promised to that other Mrs. Young a breastpin, which would be the same as that first one which he had bought for number six, but then when the news got out had been set upon by Mrs. Young's of various numbers, wave after wave, with tempests of tears spilling upon him, weepings and wailings and gnashings of teeth, until altogether he had had to promise breastpins to all twenty-nine of his spouses as a price for the restoration, restoration of peace. He had pointed out to the masked Mr. Johnson and future Mark Twain that what he had just witnessed was a specimen of his life. It had truly seemed that a man could not be wise all the time. He had poured into what could be called Mr. Johnson's tin ear his confession that in a heedless moment he had given to his darling number six a breast pen of which the apparent value was only twenty-five dollars, but of which the ultimate cost was inevitably bound to be a great good deal more. You yourself have seen it climb up to six hundred and fifty dollars, and alas, even that is not the end.' 
He stated to any man who was not of the polygamous faith to the doubtless the doubtless awesome fact that he had wives all over the territory of Utah. Dozens of wives whose numbers he did not know without looking in the family Bible. They are scattered far and wide among the mountains valleys of my realm. And mark you, he continued to the future Mark Twain, every one of them will hear of this wretched breastpin, every last one of them will have one or die. So that altogether the breastpin which he had bought for number six would cost him $2,500. If these creatures got together to compare their glass gems, and if one was found to be a shade finer than the rest, then they would all be thrown back upon his hand so that he would have to order a new lot of glass gems in order to keep the peace in his family. So that with his troubles seeming never to end, it was no wonder if eternal vigilance must be his. The lion, who was the paw of all the babes who were laid upon his paw, or who were laid between his paws, had also told the woeful, doleful, and curiously symbolic tale of a gentleman who once, when passing through Salt Lake City, had given to him, had given to one of the children of Brigham Young a tin whistle, which had seemed to him a veritable invention of Satan, an unspeakable horror, as his listener would understand when he related the troubles caused in his house by a child's having in his mouth a tin whistle, of which the number must be multiplied because the number of little mouths in a polygamous commune. Foreseeing what was now to occur, the lion had thirsted for vengeance. I ordered out of a flock of destroyed angels, and they hunted the man far into the fastness of the Nevada mountains, but they never caught him. I am not cruel, sir. I am not vindictive, except when sorely outraged. But if I had caught him, so help me Joseph Smith, I would have locked him into the nursery till the brats whistled him to death. He had not been able to make the jealous mothers of the other children believe that it was not he who had given out the one tin whistle to the one child. There were a hundred and ten children in the house then. Some were now away at college, and he had had to order a hundred and ten tin whistles, which had made such a shrieking noise that he and the other adults in his flock had had to talk on their fingers entirely from that time until the children got tired of the whistles. And if ever another man gives a whistle to a child of mine and I get my hands on him, I will hang him higher than Hammond. That is the word with the bark on it. Shade of Nephi. As for married life, Brigham Young's complaint was that it was a perfect dog's life. You cannot econom economize. It isn't possible. There were also such overwhelming expenses as those for wash bills, which literally caused Brigham Young to weep. Expenses for cradles, vermifuge, soothing syrup, teething rings, papa's watches for the babies to play with, things to scratch the furniture with, lucifer matches for the little ones to eat, pieces of glass to cut themselves with. The item of glass alone, he'd ventured to say, would have supported Mr. Johnson's family. Rather than keep thousands of dollars tied up in the purchase of seventy-two bedsteads when the money should have been put out to earn interest, Brigham Young had sold the entire lot at a loss and had built one bedstead seventy feet long and ninety-six feet wide. Had the bedstead, but the bedstead had been a failure, for he could not sleep, all the seventy-two women who were draped on either side of him snoring so loudly that the roar had been deafening, and then the danger of it. They would all draw in their breath at once, and you could actually see the swallow walls swell out and strain and hear the rafters crack and the shingles grind together. Samuel Clemens had had difficult times coming over the Mormon Bible, of which he had brought away a copy from the kingdom. So far as he was concerned, the Mormon Bible was a curiosity, a pretentious affair, so slow and sleepy that it seemed only an insipid mess of inspiration. It is chloroform and print. To him, the imaginary history, with its use of the Old Testament as a model and its plagiarism of the New Testament, was a mongrel, half-modern glibness and half-ancient simplicity and gravity. 
Whenever things were growing too modern, that was every sentence or two, Joseph Smith had ladled in the image suggesting that of an iron ladler, a few such scriptural phrases as exceeding sore, and it came to pass, and it came to pass was his pet, wrote Johnson. Clemens' belief was that Brigham Young, the Utah head, had been responsible for grafting the polygamous branch onto the murdered Joseph Smith's tree of life. But yet he was never one to advocate that the Mormon utopia should be driven off the face of the earth and into the sea, as was urged by some of the genteel anti-Mormons. Upon the publication of Roughing It in the Atlantic Monthly in its June 1872 issue, Twain had received high praise from his friend William Dean Howells, son of an old-time Ohio millennialist, a brilliant-minded liberal views who genuinely believed that he would see the endless rainbow like a bridge overarching this world when the storms of life were over. The grotesque exaggeration and broad irony with which the life is depicted are conjecturally the truest colors that could have been used. William Dean Howells had offered a nosegay to the often clowning Mark Twain, his friend and neighbor who had come to the east out of the west, for all existence, there must, be, there must have looked like an extravagant joke, the humor of which was only deepened by its neither side of tragedy. All right. Thank you for listening. Hope you're doing well wherever you are. Bye.